Welcome to the Start Here podcast for web development. I'm Keith Monahan, And I'm Dane Miller. And we're here to show you how to build a career in web dev. You can find us online at starthere.fm. Hey, Keith. How's it going? Good. Good. So you're going to buy a gold Apple Watch now? $10,000? Yeah, well, of course, right? Just $10,000 Apple Watch. Pocket change, I guess, or wrist change. What about you, though? Did you see the keynote? Did you like uh, what you saw? You know, I didn't I didn't watch the keynote. Uh, mm-hmm. I know. It's terrible. Well, you're not an Apple fan, so you yeah, don't have really. to. I have to because I'm an Apple fan. So. <laughs> it's no, a requirement for being yeah, an Apple fan. Yeah, it is. Fan. They actually come and take our MacBooks <laughs> in black fans if you don't watch it. You haven't watched your quota of Apple stuff today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dude, maybe one day. Right, right. Okay, so here's the real question. Do you have a skinny wrist or a big wrist? Skinny, dude. Okay. Totally. So you have to get the little 38 millimeter one. It's like so tiny. What? They have a small version? Yeah, they have two versions, a big one and a small one. And oh, I wanted the big one. And I was like, why would you get a small one? I don't understand. And then somebody explained to me, well, you know, it's going to look like a pizza box on your wrist <laughs> if you have a small wrist. Yeah. Or like some obtrusive piece of electronics. Yeah. Huh. And we're programmers, so we have we have ladylike wrists. <laughs> <laughs> that is so we funny. We don't pull rope all day. <laughs> no, there's this company. I well, I want to say it was BuzzFeed or, or maybe it was BuzzFeed. Did this video about skinny guys. Have you seen that? Uh, no. It is hilarious. It is like a whole video about skinny guy problems. Oh, really? I'll post it on here so people can see it. Um, yeah in the show notes it's hilarious so i think i mean the apple uh, the watch is is intriguing um you know i i, I listened to a podcast the, the niche podcast with jonathan stark and he is totally a proponent of of the watches and mm-hmm. his his thoughts um, his thoughts were that they actually save him time because it's easier to glance at a notification on your watch and then um if you don't need to respond, you can just dismiss it, right? Um, or if you do need to respond, you can pull out your phone. But when you get a notification on your phone without the watch, like you have to pull it out of your pocket every single time. And what he yeah. was saying is that it's super easy to get distracted once your phone is out of your pocket and it's in your hand. And uh, it's an interesting idea. I'd never thought about it as um, actually as a way to incre- essentially increase your productivity, yeah, it's like you're, you're hedging against um, distraction, right? So it's like it's the same sort of reason why people buy like Kindle books or mm. Kindle readers because they don't want to mm-hmm. just use the Kindle app on the iPad j- because just behind that is like a thousand games mm. that are super awesome, you know? So it's like the right. same concept. I, I like that. I, I actually hadn't considered that. Like you get a notification, you just pull up your wrist, maybe you're coding, you know, your wrist is right in your face when you're yeah. coding. And it's like, oh, I get a text message or an email alert. It's like, it's so easy to just glance at it. And, and you know, if you have to take action, mm-hmm. I actually think that's cool. I would pro- I'm probably going to close the email on my desktop then and oh, let the notifications come through my wrist because... The desktop notifications are really intrusive. Yeah, they are, yeah. Well, I read this article, and I don't remember where I found it, but maybe I can post it, about how Apple has been talking around this experience. Mm -hmm. So um, they've been talking about the Apple Watch, um, I guess the article said, in ways that weren't very cohesive, right? The benefits of the Apple Watch. They they, they weren't tying it all together. And they, they, they said that, 
you know, just what I said, that the, the reason why um, it's such a compelling device is that it means you don't have to look at your phone as much. And they said that Apple didn't want to talk about that because then it means they were like somehow admitting that, you know, there's this whole, this whole idea that you can get uh, sucked into your, your phone and it's a bad thing, right? Yeah, they don't want to have any negative connotations with the phone. There's a really tricky PR situation with the launch of a product like this, especially one that's a companion product mm-hmm. is you don't, you know, you oftentimes like you, exactly what you said, I think is the problem is like you, you don't want to uh, be perceived as downplaying the companion device. You don't want to be perceived as up selling it right like because if you if you say the watch is all there is but actually it's tied to the phone you have to have a phone to have the watch Mm -hmm. because the apps on the watch are basically like widgets the phone sends the phone is what does the network requests Mm -hmm. and and it sends updates to the watch right but what's Uh, interesting is that the watch actually makes it so you're using your phone less but does apple want that like is apple's pr going to be like play up that fact and and that's why i doubt they are and that's why i've seen very few ads that that like uh emphasize disconnection Mm -hmm. you know you don't see ads like that you see ads like that emphasize the integrity of it all the connection of it all like Mm. pull out your phone you can see what you just ran and what you did just a Mm -hmm. minute ago type thing yeah but i i'm on board with you i think it's a sort of a disconnection uh device in a way yeah, you know, I had a, I went to a UX meetup uh, locally here. We had a discussion about the Internet of Things, and this is kind of, it plays into that discussion that we had, where the Internet of Things is about, it's about sensors, essentially, sensors mm-hmm. and other devices that will become more prolific, and they will start feeding us mm-hmm. uh, information and data. And then you're going to have, essentially, you're going to have these um, central uh, processing hubs, Right, which could be your phone or it could be an online service like Google or something like that. And then you'll have these other devices for viewing and consuming that that information, right? And so it's this, there's like these three different types of, um, I guess, devices, right? The sensors that will feed data into the system and then there'll be the an- analysis of the data and then ways to consume the information. And mm-hmm. It's interesting. We we went off on a tangent about how it would be great to see that computing um, paradigm step away from the phone mm-hmm. and to online, um, because then your device is just a screen. It's ubiquitous, and you just you don't have to necessarily take it with you, or if you lose it, you can replace it, and it's literally zero downtime. Yeah, I mean, when I think about that exact topic of like devices that are shells for some kind of web component, server component somewhere that produce like maybe you know so so basically I see all these like startups coming out like there's that startup that just launched that is um, basically selling you a little square and you take it home and you plug it into an internet connection and then you automatically get the latest operating system because mm-hmm. it's all coming from the server mm-hmm. and then you sort of combine that idea with like maybe those clap those like balloons Google's launching and with Google Lunar and mm-hmm. then you know combine that with some other stuff that's happening and the trend could really easily go towards this like always on server side uh, mm-hmm. computing paradigm where the device doesn't have an operating system the device is just like a shell for something mm-hmm. else right? yeah yeah exactly and so the other thing that i've been thinking about in this realm um that part of the whole disconnect from the device thing specifically from the phone is there like right now um 
we have preferences. You have preferences. I have preferences. And what's really frustrating to me is that when I go into a piece of software like Google or like Facebook and I have to duplicate my the same preferences in both places um, and where those converge is perhaps on my phone where I can set some global preferences, right? And what I would like to see is a service or maybe maybe nonprofit, maybe government, I don't know, preferably not government, that that was a place where we could we could define all of those services um, and maybe even have data ab- about us, right? Some basic preference data. And that would live somewhere besides the phone mm-hmm. because, I don't know, it's compelling. I would like to be able to, um, instead of Facebook owning all my preferences, what I'd like to be able to do is, is if I connect, because they make money off of me, off of my preferences. And... And they can use that, and that's privacy. And it's it's this dichotomy of services or privacy. Which one do you want? Mm-hmm. Do you want to use this Facebook service that everyone else uses? Or do you want to have privacy? And it puts you in this really difficult situation. Mm-hmm. And I think that a new model could be this, like, this central preferences hub of some sort. where Or, or decentral preferences hub? <laughs> yes, thank you. Well, okay, yes, it's a decentralized preferences hub. It's it's decentral from everybody else, but it's a you know it's just one one portal essentially. And what you do is instead of, I mean, there's been lots of discussion about this um, trend towards paying for services instead of sure. having to um, give up your privacy, totally. right? And so when you connect to a service, the service literally sends an, an like an auth request or something to your 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 hub and it says hey i mean and and the apps on our phones do this right now and it literally says hey can i have authorization to look at this information or to have some of this information from you mm-hmm. right and then you can say yes or no and at any time you can log into your hub and you can you can see what apps have authorizations and then you can revoke them if you want to and so it puts the user right at the center of their own privacy online. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't grown that way because of, well, advertising, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, when you say preferences, what also I hear is just data. So you're, you're kind of saying data in a way. And what um, one thing that I'm seeing in this area is things like Ethereum, which is sort of like a decentralized... Um, organization with a platform and programming language and application building structure that allows for building decentralized applications that can communicate with each other in a unified way, but the data never is owned by a single company. Like Mm. the decisions aren't made by a single company. Nothing is made by anybody. It's all made by the individual pieces, right? And so if you if you think that might be one thing that happens in the future, then perhaps that will solve that, right? Like, because, you know, the one reason why everybody's so sketch about the internet of things and the reason it's like not already here is like, uh, you know, privacy and security and like all these issues of like, well, if I connect everything then somebody's going to own everything and it's like, well, not really, because in the future, everything could potentially, one version of the future, one multiverse that could potentially happen is that the Bitcoin blockchain is what runs everything. Like the mathematical <laughs> paradigm mm-hmm. of that blockchain is sure. what Ethereum sits on and what all sure. these decentralized apps run on. Yeah. And it's just a, it's a, it's a math algorithm, right? So it's like that 
theoretically should be what's running things. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, not some corporation full of humans that have uh, emotion and, and mental, like, if, if, you know, like we're in a mathematical world, like yeah. why not let math run things? Well, and their intentions are not for our benefit, typically, sure. right? I mean, if, if the right. primary... Because they're not run by math. <laughs> If their primary intention is to make money, right, yeah, and the way they do that is through advertising, then they yeah. will always be at odds with the user, mm-hmm. in some way, like Facebook is. I mean, sure, they created they can create a compelling user experience, um, and the the ubiquitous of it, ubiquitousness of it, ubiquity, <laughs> ubiquity. Thank you of that is that every, every everybody has it so it's that's yep. another selling factor but the the trade off is that you are giving your private information to Facebook in exchange for that and it's but sad you you mentioned ubiquity though and it, people might say what i what i just was referencing is super fringe like this ethereum thing uh, well i will tell you they're working with the w3c payment group like ethereum the foundation there is one piece of the company that's a foundation and that foundation's job is to go around and do business development basically with other uh big entities that mm-hmm. will allow those big entities to consider moving to a decentralized model oh, interesting. and they've been invited to the w3c sort of uh payment group where that's the first place they're going to try to introduce some of this decentralization so that nobody can hack uh, the money system in the future. That's what they would like to build. So it's funny because if you think, what is the first thing that somebody should build a decentralized model around? It's like, well, you should probably do it around the most complicated thing, but that sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, yeah. it's a pain in the ass, but it's true. Like you should fix money and you should fix mm-hmm. people hacking money. Uh, yeah. So tough That's problem. Yeah. Well, on data, it'd be super easy to have your, you know, your de- decentralized hub, and then the hub itself wouldn't store your data. You could just connect it to your favorite data storage, you know, connect it to yeah. Dropbox, and then you literally, your data... There's actually a really popular Dropbox clone in Ethereum on, on the store for the... There's like a decentralized version of Dropbox. It's like it's like Decentralbox or some shit huh. like that. But, yeah. Yeah, but the idea is that when you connect your hub to other services any data you create there is actually your data and it gets saved into your personal database, wherever you want that to be, whether that's in Google drive or on Amazon somewhere in a personal cloud or Dropbox or whatever. And so it's, I don't know, it's compelling. I'm gonna have to take a look at Ethereum. That sounds really interesting. Well, the funny thing is like, yeah, your data, what you just said though, is, is, is sort of only half true, right? Like your data could technically never exist in Amazon EC2 or on your own server. The whole point of a decentralized model is that a thousand pieces of your data exist in like a million different locations, mm-hmm. right? So nobody could ever n- know where your data is. And and but if could ever, I could I retrieve it? I mean, could I oh, retrieve course, it and right? delete it's it? It's like a torrent, right? Like you torrent things. In but the same could I way. delete it? Yeah, deletion works in the same way. It just has to oh, okay. go through and first collect up all those pieces. And okay. the whole point of this like a mathematical model is it's like a linked list. Like mm-hmm. you don't actually know what the next item is until you get to the next item and then that item points to the next mm-hmm. item and that and you yeah. know it's very simple but yeah, Bitcoin, somehow yeah, it's so cool. secure, which is really funny. Yeah. Well, I hope it I hope it takes off. I read a very discouraging article about Bitcoin when it first came out, so I kind of avoided it unfortunately because it <laughs> The price well, of Bitcoin just skyrocketed after that. 
I think Bitcoin could potentially fail big time. But I mean, I think what won't fail is what this paper was written on, which is the blockchain. Like that concept of how that's actually implemented and used at scale mm-hmm. to do all these transactions, that's pretty world class. Mm-hmm. Like, that, they, sure. you know, they're invited to the W3C to talk about the blockchain. They aren't talking about mm-hmm. Bitcoin, um, which that's, you know, that's interesting. So I guess to get going, first off, we just wanted to highlight a few people that uh, interacted today. They are this since last episode. Uh, they had some good questions. Last week we talked about wireframing and user experience in general user experience design like ux design uh so matthew geiger on twitter he's like uh he asked a question do wireframes include fly-in boxes or pop-ups and i think the idea is there do you articulate your your interactions in your wireframe and i think yeah if it's an important enough interaction you know that's part of the experience for sure you could i mean obviously it's static so you can make notes you could create a duplicate a duplicate wireframe and and show it in its in its other transformed state or something like that. So yeah, for sure, I would I would definitely do stuff like that, like design your your pop up modals and things like that. Yeah, and then Mark Ward has some questions. He's like, he asked, wouldn't the UI be determined by the device type? So the user interface be determined by the device type, um, and and when when should we consider that? And yeah, that's a that's a great question, and for sure it should. The, you can go down a rabbit hole here because there are you know thousands of different types and sizes of devices, right? And so, if you're thinking about desktop and mobile and maybe tablet as well, um, yeah, yeah. I guess it depends on how much time you want to spend um, fine tuning the experience on every single device. Typically, we work with responsive design, and so the design on a desktop typically works fairly well on a tablet, and then probably has to be modified more for. A mobile phone, and so if if you need to um, think through what that design is going to look like, how it's going to transform to the mobile phone, then yeah, definitely you can wireframe for the mobile, uh, and then move to wireframing for desktop, or vice versa. I guess whatever you feel most comfortable with. There's this this idea that we should design mobile first, and that's a literal statement. So you would literally start wireframing with the mobile device first. And the idea is that since you have such a small screen and it's more difficult to work with, that you only put in the important stuff. When you move that site to a desktop, it's a, it's a better experience because you didn't just throw everything in that you could. You mm-hmm. really thought through what should be there. Yep. So great question. Yeah. So, Keith, last week we spoke about wireframing and all of the things that are involved, some of the things you think about and the problems that you face. And we also discussed how wireframing is using a thick marker or can be often visualized by using a thick marker to draw. Mm-hmm. How does one uh, take those wireframes and move on to the next step, which is, from my perspective, the next step is uh, getting the HTML on the page, getting the CSS on the page, beginning mm-hmm. the actual website. How do you make that transition? Yeah, great question. So for sure, it's it's about prototyping. Yeah, prototyping in the in the browser, and I will prototype with HTML and CSS, and literally just bring over the wireframe designs uh, designs to the uh, to the browser. So you can kind of play with things. You can actually click buttons. You can click between pages if you've done pages. But when do you know when do you know when to switch from wireframing to prototyping i think i think that's a tough question because you can't really say oh you should wireframe 
XYZ, and then you can start prototyping. It's probably mm. more of a gut feel. What if the answer was this? Would you agree with it? You switch from wireframing to prototyping when you're sufficiently excited to begin prototyping. Yeah, I, yeah, sure. I think so. I mean, seems good. Yeah, because because that means like you've got it all thought out. Like you've probably done enough thinking. You, you're kind of excited about your thinking. Mm-hmm. It seems you probably have some kind of organizational concept to how you want to go about it because mm-hmm. that can lead to excitement as well. Right. So you've you've done enough wireframing that you have. Um, a really solid idea for totally. for what you want to see. And so this last week I've started prototyping and started building in the browser and it's fun because it can kind of, we can see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's very bland because I'm still using grays, right? So it's, uh, I do prototyping in a similar way to wireframing in that I don't, it's not very pretty, but what it is, it's getting the elements on the page in the right spot, in the right size, and then seeing how they interact together and then working on the responsive part of it. That's that's the prototyping phase is where I'm going to fine tune the the responsive nature down into into mobile. Like, how does it look? How does it feel? So with the with the prototyping, um, I started doing that this last week and I started working on one particular section because I had wireframed that. And I wanted to see how those different elements in the wireframe, and actually you guys will have seen them or you can see them on the show page for last week. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see how those would work uh, before I went any further. So I'm having, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do more wireframing for other sections of the site before I continue with the prototyping in the browser because, um, and maybe it'll be really informal. Maybe I won't use uh, Basalmic, like the digital uh, wireframing. Maybe I'll just use pen and paper and just sketch it out. Um, if I already have an idea. And this is where we're moving away from waterfall a bit, right? So the Mm -hmm. waterfall model would be to finish all your wireframing and then get it. It's very static, like cut or dry, like finish all Mm -hmm. your, all your wireframing, then move on to the prototyping. And you mean, you mean wireframe every single page? Yeah. But I like your model. Your model is a little bit more agile and I, I, I think it's more organic because what you're doing is you're prototyping one wireframe that you did and mm-hmm. maybe you're going to do some responsive design, but that responsive design and that prototyping can then play into the wireframe. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the wireframe needs to be a source of truth. There's never a sort like in my mind, the, the waterfall model is like, there's always a source of truth. It's the wireframes yeah. and it's the prototype. For me, it's like there's there's never a source of truth there's constantly evolving good Mm -hmm. ideas sure and so that's what you're doing i I love it yeah and so i mean there was even an example in the wireframe um for the show page i had an example where the hosts the images of the hosts were you know above each other one and Uh, and when i designed it here i realized well that's not going to work if there's four hosts because mm -hmm. it's going to change the width of this column or make the text really narrow and so i had to rethink it right and so Good point. Yeah, getting off the off the wireframing into the prototyping, it just helps you, you know, figure out even further how stuff is going to work. Yeah, and like uh, viewing all of this as like thinking tools is nice because I do, it allows you to stop like this perfectionist thinking mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, I have to perfect the wireframes, I have to perfect the responsive design. No, mm-hmm. it's like all of it is just a tool to think clearly um, about your project. Right. Yeah, that that's a good idea. I think. I mean, that's a good thought. Like as as we go through this process we actually we just talked about this this whole this whole development process is basically going from obscurity into clarity yeah right it's like your job is to take this idea and then 
as you dig in, as you get into the weeds for these different tasks, whether it's back-end development, front-end development, mm-hmm. UX design, or whatever it is, as you go from, you know, as you dig in, you start to, there's a, there's a, there's a path that becomes apparent. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's never, or it's very rarely straight, you know, from point A to point B. It's always this, this back-and-forth, wavy path, maybe in circles, right, if you're... Um, that leads you to the end. Right. And I think the concept of waterfall has been to try to make that path as straight as possible. People think if I can go from one to the next, to the next, to the next, it's a straight path. And if I do agile, it might be a wavy kind of back and forth path. And it's like kind of confusing. I disagree. I actually don't think it's confusing. I think it's more natural and more organic. Yeah. It yeah, sounds sure. like, yeah, you do too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it definitely feels more organic to, um, I mean, I guess it, <laughs> It probably takes a little bit of experience to feel that way, I think, because I early on, yeah, early you on. You don't even know. Yeah, you don't know. <laughs> right. Early on, I would have a project and I would prototype. <laughs> like, I probably have uh, a couple hundred uh, wireframes for a mobile a mobile app. It was it was a, uh, a maintenance app right, uh-huh. for an industry. Like, and I had, I had literally drawn out like probably 100 or 200 um, pages. Like yeah. screens of this thing, and it still hadn't still hadn't designed it in the browser, right? Yeah. That was early on, and so thinking back, I'd be like, "Oh my gosh, what was I thinking?" I would totally just get a general feel for it, and then just test it out. Now, yeah, it's a progression. Like I said, from from obscurity into clarity. From wireframing is very rough, and then prototyping is less rough, and then from prototyping, you're going to go into actually designing. And one of the steps between prototyping and designing is starting to think about the feel of the experience. And so you can start thinking about buttons. Like I spent, I don't know how much time with uh, some button design for the prototype um, yeah. just because it was one of those little things, right? It was an interaction um, that I wanted to be like buttery smooth and like really cool. But but if you don't mind, let's talk about how you did that button thing. Like not the actual Im- implementation, but but what you did was you kind of dove in and you you sort of went way deep on it, and you mm-hmm. were playing around with all these different border styles and different border paddings and all this stuff. You went you went all the way to the bottom. You know mm-hmm. you you really dove in, but you came back for right. error. And so what you and and what I want to juxtapose that with is you doing two hundred pages of designs for a mock up. Like that's not coming out that's going all in and staying there and <laughs> that's a good if, example <laughs> like so if somebody came to me with 200 pages that were drawn for an app and they were like i'm having problems with this idea the business and the execution i'd be like well, well you know you spent too long on, you went too deep you didn't come back well you got to come back and i think yeah. somehow elaborating that is important that's a great example and some i thought of inception for some reason right sure um where you like you go so deep you can't come back or something totally um, yeah, and that's actual. That's a totally legit thing. Like, if you guys, listeners, if you're all spending your time on wireframes and you spend an inordinate amount of time on wireframes, stop because you're going to have even harder of a time stopping if you keep mm-hmm. going. It yeah. just gets worse and worse because so, it's a perfection thing. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it definitely can be. I think. I, I think it is because you can only you can only take a wireframe so far, and then you mm-hmm. have to put it in the browser to to continue working totally. on it. You know, because yeah. even you spend time trying to understand the best way to, um, you know, lay out a website with a wireframe, mm-hmm. but then you put it in the browser and then it doesn't exactly work like you thought it would. Totally. Yeah. So moving, moving to prototyping, super cool, super fun. Um, 
allows you to work out the interactions. And this is actually when you can start um, playing with some of that. Uh, you could you could implement a little bit of JavaScript for some for some interaction if you wanted to. Um, I keep it pretty bare bones though. Um, one thing I wanted to mention real quick about the um, yeah. the wireframing, not to get into the weeds. Like if you have five complete like wireframe pages or views, then that's probably a good time to start. Um, totally to start going. I had I had three versions of my wireframe. I posted all of them. You can look at them if you want. There's a first, second, and then the third one that I'm I'm putting into the prototype now, and that's one view, right? I only worked on one view articulating that um and then i i jumped here i'm gonna go back and work on others um but i would say that if you had like five i wouldn't do any more than five preferably less that's cool that you gave a number like it allows us to tell the listeners to to stop so Mm -hmm. do not go further than five yeah yeah exactly cool so i guess the next logical question for me is when do you know uh that you're done prototyping and you're actually accidentally implementing <laughs> like when do you <laughs> there's like this for me when i start doing front-end shit i can never find the line well i'm gonna actually just implement a design somewhat that's coming to me on the fly versus i'm gonna restrict myself here and not do that and instead just do some prototyping like some gray boxes and and, and how do you how do you like do how that? do you stop from going too deep yeah, into the prototyping that I think it takes experience as well because oh my gosh I love to tinker sure and I like I love CSS it's it's cool I like it and I will tinker forever yeah uh, if I let myself but I think it just comes with um, with experience probably you know um, with the prototyping I did here. I just gave myself gray, essentially, yeah. black, gr- black, white, and gray. And I'm using different shades of gray to articulate different um, tones, whether it's sure. dark or light, um, on the page. And then I'll be able to go in and, and, and add the color later. Um, yeah, I don't think you should be using color on a prototype. Um, again, because that's one more thing. And to, to get to your other question, how do you go from prototyping to actually designing? Like, what is what is the life of a prototype? Where does it go after it's it's lived its usefulness? Well, I'm building this prototype to be the design. So I'm structuring the CSS and the HTML in a way that makes sense and in a way that um, is relatively production ready um and so as a prototype it's fleshing out the actual design and then what i'll do is i'll come back in later and i'll start adding more interactions and then i'll start adding more color and and, um and the the actual design elements of the of the page um and again it maybe it's a maybe it's more of a feeling like when you when you start but in this sense i think that a prototype it needs to um, I mean, obviously, before you move on to the design stage, your prototype has to pretty much be a full app. I mean, uh, or a full site. Wouldn't you say it needs to articulate every view? I think I'm a weird case because I don't think I've ever had an idea that I built every single view for. I would always just get excited about an idea, build a few views, <laughs> and then not finish it. <laughs> but we're doing it differently because we're like working on this project together, right? And so right. there's a, there's a clear delineation between our roles you're working on the back end and i'm working on the front end and so right yeah if we're talking about like a work project then yeah i agree with you like i I think 
theoretically, you would have a prototype for every single page. In order to become the actual HTML for the site, you have to have the HTML and CSS for the podcast show page, and then for a single podcast, and for a hosts page, um, and and all of these different... And, and even the admin view, well, I think that's less important to get going to start with, right? But the admin view of where you, how are you going to edit this, this application? What is that going to look like? Yeah. Um, I, and oftentimes I think the word prototyping is even weird because it makes people think that we're going to throw this out or something. But I, I obviously, me and you approach this the same way. This is just like the first draft of a page that will exist. Like this exact page will exist. Mm-hmm. Um, it might even have this exact HTML. Uh, it's just the colors are going to be different and maybe it's going to change a lot, but maybe it doesn't, right? Like, so you're yeah. building like the structure of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not quite like a prototype kind of lends itself to, I feel like people think, I mean, throw it away after, right? Like we don't, we don't throw away prototypes. Right. I mean, it definitely feels like um, there is that connotation with the prototype. Yeah. Yeah. The idea is that it's just super loose, loosely coupled, right? You don't want to start creating these really intense design patterns or anything because um, it needs to be fluid still. It's still in that, that kind of that wireframe stage where things can move around and things need to, um, you need to have the freedom to to scrap part of it and start over. And so it's got to be really minimalistic. Um, sure. And maybe what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll take this prototype that I have right now um, as is and I'll post it somewhere where we're not going to update it at all. So you guys can see what this, uh, what this looks like from here. Yeah. Okay. So next topic. So, um, you chose to not use the CSS framework for this. Can you tell us why? Sure. Well, first tell us what, what, what I mean by that. For listeners that don't understand what a CSS framework is, just lightly define it and then tell us maybe like what, what one is like an example of one and then, and then say why you're not. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so uh, the CSS framework is, um, it's basically a starting place for your style. And it most often includes, if not always, includes a grid. So you can quickly set up um, your site into grids. Sometimes it's broken down into 12 columns or 10 columns. Um, and then it usually has a outside container with whether it's 960 or 1200 or whatever. Maybe it's adjustable. Um, but the idea is that it has, um, it's opinionated. Okay, let's say that. So the CSS framework is opinionated in some ways so that you can plug it into your your site and um, get it up and going very quickly. And so the most common when you've got, the most common CSS frameworks are uh, Bootstrap and Foundation um, and the one I was playing with was UI kit. Um, and th- there's a ton, actually there's, there's a ton. Those are the big ones. Yeah. I, I tend to be a little more, um, of a perfectionist with, with the CSS. I want, I want the spacing to be exactly like, you know, how I want it. And a lot of times the responsive, the way that things happen, um, in the responsive, h- how it responds to width, you know, down to mobile happens differently than I want it to. Um, and so I guess in that way, I'm a little more opinionated about, about how I want it to act. So that's... I can what... hear the stress in your voice like from <laughs> when you think... Because I, I, I've run into the same issues. When you use a CSS framework, it applies padding to everything oh in ways gosh. that you don't want. And like, so you have to style something, but you're constantly fighting the framework. Yes. And I can, I can totally hear that in your voice. <laughs> yeah. So I started building the prototype with a UI framework. Yeah. Um, 
I was actually pretty excited about the UI kit. Uh, it's, I think it's getuikit.com. Mm-hmm. I was pretty excited about that to begin with because they have the best um, implementation of an off-canvas mobile menu um, yeah. that I've seen between any of the top uh, frameworks, you know, Bootstrap Foundation, any of them. I loved it. I liked it. I've used it on a, one other project. But when I got in and I started working with the prototype, I was I was I found myself wrangling the uh, you know struggling with the confines of the of the app itself and i was like you know what i i don't want to do this because it is going to be like this mm-hmm. for the rest of the time yeah um and whatever benefits i might have experienced it's gonna totally sour the project for me i'm not gonna like it so um ultimately that's why i i jumped ship on that and when i decided that i got in and i just started fresh it actually came together w- way more quickly um hmm. but i think Again, that probably comes with experience, knowing how to structure your HTML, knowing how to structure your CSS so that it makes sense, it'll work well. Um, because you have to think of what it's going to do when it when it responds down to mobile. Um, yeah. Wh- what it's going to look like, how it's going to flow. There's probably a bit of experience that goes with that. But I wouldn't say always go use a framework or always start from scratch. I think you should play with both and work with both. I've worked with Foundation, Bootstrap, and you know a bunch of them, but... Yeah, and a great way to learn the best practices in CSS is to just look at Bootstrap and see how they do it or look at Foundation and see how they do it. You can see the two different types of classes. Well, so they name I, them. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, they use a ton of divs, right? In order well, to achieve some of this stuff, they... Sure. Right, there's there's this... They have so much markup. Um, I, I feel like it clutters. There's a of markup. Yeah. So much. It's crazy, and and that's the other thing is it just it is cluttered, and so when you're trying to debug something, it is a pain because you don't know is it this outer container or this outer container or this outer container? Which one has this padding that's pushing this thing out of whack? Anyway, that's one of the other things. Well, so. but like when you're building a a, you, a framework, you kind of almost have to do that because you have you're you're basically building something that people are going to have to so. You know, like has to be extensible. Yeah. Well, they have your customers are writing HTML, but they're not styling stuff. So, like, don't think you know, thinking to yourself in your head, like, how would you implement that? Well, you would have to implement that with a bunch of like divs, like HTML nodes, mm-hmm. because each one affects the canvas in such ways. And you know, if if the customers aren't writing CSS themselves, then we have to do it for them. It's it's one of those unfortunate things. But I would say, like looking at those frameworks, I agree with you. Like the HTML might not be best practice, but some of the CSS is great. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the techniques they use, the grid yeah. implementations are fantastic. You know, very can be a very advanced if you're interested in that. So at this point, you guys probably have a good uh, concept for when to jump into prototyping from wireframing. Again, that five version uh, per page quote is is a good one to stick by. And then you've also given us a good sort of understanding of prototyping and, and how we have to dive down into some of the details, but then come up for air and make sure that we keep iterating on those wireframes, iterating on the prototypes. Um but then what would you say is the next step? Uh, because perhaps, you know, a listener is is new to web design or web mm-hmm. development. And, you know, the next step for me and you might just be very simple in that we're just going to iterate on this prototype over and over again. But do you have any things that jump mm-hmm. out at you when you think of the next steps? Yeah, good question. Um, so working with real data and real content is really important because the content, good point. Good point. yeah, the content is what should... 
um, inform your design and your mm-hmm. user experience. Mm-hmm. And so up till now, I've been using Laura Mipsum and just some filler text, um, even though I know in general what the content's going to look like. So I, I think the next, like after I finish this prototype, and by finish I mean flesh out most of the views, if not all of them, um, I think the next step would be to uh, connect it up to the app. Um, so the Rails app that you've been building. Yep. And then once we get the data to display inside the prototype, we'll be able to see whether or not we need to adjust some things. And so after that, I would go and I would adjust, uh, make adjustments for the actual data. And then, of course, apply the, the actual styles, mm-hmm. whether we're doing, you know, nice background images or, you know, adding color to different things fine-tuning the interactions if we're doing some fun javascript stuff whatever mm-hmm. yeah totally cool is there anything i'm missing any questions that you're thinking would be good for a beginner anything else around prototyping that you want to talk about well I, this probably makes sense to most people but you should always prototype locally and huh. what i mean by that is you may have a your own server, right? You know, like shared hosting server or whatever mm-hmm. set up online somewhere on your domain. And it doesn't make sense to like make changes and then push them to the cloud and refresh there. You should definitely be doing it locally. And if, you're, if your response to that is that you SSH into the server and then use VI on the server to do editing and it's the same as if you were editing locally, then this is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Okay, if you know what he just said, then you're not, this isn't for you. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, okay, so do it locally. What I did for my structure is that I did set up a header. Okay, I'm using, I'm familiar with PHP, so I'm using PHP to have a separate header and footer files, right? Mm -hmm. So I am, like I said, I'm building this to to become the the final app, right? So I've got Mm -hmm. a header and footer file and I put header stuff and footer stuff. And that means that I can create different pages and then you reuse those headers and footers. And so, yeah, Initially, or even just very basically, you can set up a PHP include or whatever your language you're using uh, to bring in those um, headers and footers and stuff that are going to be that are going to need to be duplicated, or even sidebars and stuff like that. So don't be afraid to step into some PHP or something like that. Actually, that's one of the cool things about PHP is that um, you can set up a, a server on your computer pretty simply. I think for PHP mm-hmm. using WAMP server or MAMP mm-hmm. or something like that. WAMP um, or MAMP. Yeah. And it is super easy. I mean, PHP was created, we talked about this in one of the previous episodes, PHP was created to be an insanely easy language to work with on the web. And it, and it really is um, simple to use yep. in, in that regard if you want to like bring in some files and have it, have it set up like that. Yeah, so last week we asked for uh, examples of your wireframes because uh, we, we want to see what you guys have come up with and we shared some of our wireframes online. And so um, if you still have wireframes that you want to share with us, we'd love to see those. And if you have questions um, or want some, some of our thoughts, we'd love to help out with that too. Moving forward, if you have a prototype um, that you've put together, we'd love to see that, you know, if, whether it's responsive or not or super basic. Um, I'm going to throw up uh, our prototype as it is right now um, somewhere on the website where you can take a look at it um, it's going to be the link for that's going to be on our show page today which is at starthere.fm slash webdev slash 18 
you can find all of the resources that we talked about there. And we also want to continue to make this community project. So feel free to tweet at us at Start Here FM, email us Dane at Start Here FM, Keith at Start Here FM. And one other thing that we would love to do is if you're also building a project along with us, if you've taken this as an opportunity to sort of learn on the fly, and maybe you're maybe last week you were doing some uh, wireframes for the first time, maybe this week you're doing prototypes for the first time, that is awesome. And I would love to pair program with you. So mm. if you are uh, about to start something for the first time, or maybe you're an HTML guy, you've done it for a couple years, maybe you're new, whatever, like just get in touch with us. We would love to, to continue to, to build this together. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. We will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.